And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, depending upon where you are on this rotating speck of sand and dust in the middle of the Milky Way. Welcome to the other side of midnight, which used to be the time when all kinds of weird things happened. And now, of course, if you looked at the news, we're in the middle of it. In fact, tonight's program came about because I was saying to several people, I mean, this is like living in the middle of the twilight zone with what's going on with the virus and the presidency and the election and India and China and all kinds of conspiracy theories and people not knowing where to turn, where to get accurate information. I mean, it is really the twilight zone. And then it occurred to me, oh, and a good friend of ours, Mark Eddy said, um, would you like to have someone on to talk about the Twilight Zone? And I said, you're kidding, of course. So we've got a very important guest tonight who's going to take us to places that you have not been for many, many decades. Unless, of course, you follow all the reruns on, on sci-fi and whatever. And is there an episode that those of us who have followed this show do not know by heart? We're going to find out tonight. Before we get to all that, however, I want to do a very critical tie-in. If you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on tonight's, um, well, any, any night's um, homepage or URL, the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's banner for Sunday, the 29th of March, 2020, um, Twilight Zone with Rod Serling there on the left. That will take you to tonight's guest page. Um, you're going to want to click on uh, Richard's uh, fast link items. That will take you down to my radio with pictures items. The fr- I've got, I have three, no, I have four graphics I want to show you. The first graphic, uh, number one, shows as of a couple days ago, the world total number of cases, the world total number of deaths, and the number of countries which are currently affected which I think is now topping something like 150. The deaths and those numbers are irrelevant because they are, they are being outdistanced every hour by new numbers. This is growing exponentially, geometrically. You know, like uh, Sulu said in that first episode of Star Trek, you know, it's like uh, flipping a penny uh, into your bank account and the next day you do two, and the next day you do four, the next day you do eight, Pretty soon you're a billionaire. The problem here is if you look at the uh, item number two, this is the graph for the current. Well, it's not current. It's as of two days ago. The current number of cases now is over 120,000 in the United States with almost 3,000 deaths. Look at the shape of that curve. It is, it's not asymptotic, meaning it would be going straight up. But it's damn well close to it, and it shows zero signs inflecting the curve. We're bending the curve. We're flattening that curve. And the key thing here, of course, is we want to keep as many people out of the hospitals as possible. Because this is a kind of a disease, and I'm, I'm using my own survey now, where if you get it, you will likely wind up in the hospital. In fact, that takes me down to graph number three which shows the numbers of people under by age under 10, 10 to 19, 20 to 29, et cetera. Look at that 30 to 79 year age group. 87% of the um, cases are in that age group, as you can see. And what they're not saying about that is that 20% of those people, 20% of that restricted age group are going to die. And the reason they're going to die is because there will not be enough medical facilities anywhere in the country to sustain them. They'll be lying in halls, in basements, in hotel rooms, basically on maintenance and without a respirator, not respirator, without a ventilator, without a means to basically breathe for them artificially. This is so deadly and so dangerous that even young, healthy people in that age group, many of them, many of them, tragically, far too many, are succumbing. And if the ventilator supply, which is this small gadget, which, um, let me see, there we are, there we are. If you, if you scroll down to number five, 
That's what a ventilator looks like. It's a small computer-sized device with tubes coming out of it. It's got electric motors. It's got all kinds of computer feedback loops for pressure and oxygen and all that. And it's um, you feed it into the patient through a tube that goes into the mouth and into the throat. And it basically breathes for the patient who cannot take a breath because this virus is is uh, filling their lungs with uh, with fluid. <clears throat> now, here's the interesting news. By the way, number four is just a, a curb, set of curves of the countries where new cases are popping up. And as you can see, everybody except for the original countries, go go look at those numbers, the color codes, the original countries. China appears to have this pretty much under control. Of course, we're going to find out what happens when they open back up. But there are very few countries that are ahead of this, and we're we're not. We're last on the list or first on the list, depending upon your perspective. We now have the most number of cases, and very quickly we're going to have, as these curves show, the most number of deaths. And it is not just restricted to seniors. This is striking all across the spectrum. In fact, I saw a very interesting paper this afternoon describing what happens in the body when when someone contracts this brand new uh, disease for which there is no natural immunity because it's never been in the in the herd before you've heard about this thing called herd immunity well doesn't exist here or anywhere in the world yet because there are so few cases compared to the population so it's going to run literally like a prairie fire unless we separate physically and that's a long discussion, so we'll you know delay that for some other time. You're all well aware of of what we need to do and what what strikes me as weird is that we are we are so blessed with these technological tools like I'm talking to you over right now anywhere in the world you can hear my voice because of the internet because of Skype because of Zoom because of all these connecting technologies that allow us to i mean literally have dinner with someone halfway across the world. And boy, is there someone I wish I could have dinner with right now, even halfway across the world. Anyway, um, something happened. Oh, there we are. Okay. We don't want that to do that, so we will turn that down. Thank you. Sometimes these touch screens are incredibly sensitive. Anyway, where was I? <clears throat> so... What you want to do now is you want to look at item number six. Because many years ago, as you know, um, uh, Robin was a medical professional. And, you know, she would talk medicine just like I talk astronomy or astrophysics or whatever. I mean, it was her life. It was day, night. It was 24-7. She helped so many people. And for so many reasons, she should be here now helping us with this. And she's not. And I feel like such a such a poor substitute. But. Some years ago, when we were going, I think it was to Mexico to measure Teotihuacan with the Acatron, there was a um, epidemic. I believe it was SARS, I think, back in the early 2000s. There have been quite a few of them, so without looking it up, you know, you can kind of get lost. There's SARS, there's MERS, there's N1H1 or H1N1, whatever. The point is that we've had a series of these over the last decade or two. So during the, the one of those early ones, um, I remember her saying something because there was discussion then because these are respiratory diseases where unless you get the patient into intensive care and you get them on a ventilator and you get them on a machine that can breathe for them, they will die. That's the difference between life and death, this technology. Turns out now that we're in incredibly short supply in terms of this ventilator technology. Why? Because nobody planned, it's obvious now, for a worldwide pandemic that would require every respirator, and not, sorry, I keep saying respirator, respirators are masks, every ventilator, that's a machine that actually breathes for you, on the planet and corporations to step up and make a lot, lot more. <clears throat> and yes, Mr. President, we need... 30 or 40,000 of these in New York alone to handle the literally millions of people that are going to be coming down with this and hundreds of thousands who are going to die unless they have active medical assistance, primarily a ventilator to allow them to breathe 
till their body, you know, takes over and turns the curve. There are not enough ventilators. Now, there have been Herculean efforts by private companies. I know that Musk has offered uh, the facilities of Tesla. There's a major um, uh, manufacturing plant he owns in New York State, which he's going to be turning to in the next week or so to making ventilators. GM is going to make ventilators. There are other companies working in cooperation, major companies with these small, specialized companies that make these ventilators. I mean, you have no idea how complex these things are, but you can get an idea when you saw what happened to me last night where a computer problem just kicked me off the air. No way we could do a live show. Can you imagine having hundreds of thousands of people hooked to a machine where not only does it mechanically have to work perfectly, but in terms of the computer program, you can't allow viruses, pun intended. You can't allow hacking. You can't allow all kinds of just normal things that happen, you know, power failures, uh, uh, frequency mismatch in the 60AC coming into the hospital, that kind of thing. You do not want this complicated device to go offline because if it does, people attached to it by those tubes will die. So I'm thinking back to this conversation that Robin and I had when we were, you know, heading to Mexico and we went through the airports and people were wearing blue masks and um, it was like a mini version, certainly in Mexico, of what you're seeing now all over the world. And I remember her saying something about, well, why don't they bring out of storage those old-fashioned iron lungs? And, you know, Robin's been gone a year and I suddenly thought back, conversation. And then I realized, no, 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 no. There's only, I think, 1,500 to 2,000 of those things that were ever made because the epidemic back then was so much smaller in terms of polio, which was primarily what this technology was used for. It was literally used to breathe for patients whose chest paralysis because of polio literally would not allow them to breathe for themselves. It was called an iron lung. And you can see, if you look at the number of images, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, these are images that Ron Gerbron uh, was able to dig up on short notice. Number 7 is interesting because this is a an iron lung which is not iron. In fact, there were MacGyvers. I'm going to go back to that term, MacGyver you know, a little later when we talk with Arlen. But there were MacGyvers in Australia back in the 1950s when there were not enough iron lungs who literally made their own for hospitals out of plywood and vacuum cleaners and, you know, blacksmith bellows. I mean, talk about MacGyvering. So I started thinking, what would happen if you could get someone like Elon, like Musk, to turn his whole factory not to making ventilators, these highfalutin, much too complex, cantankerous, finicky devices that have almost 200 parts inside, each of which has to come from somewhere far across, you know, some ocean. The supply chains are all being disrupted. The workers are not working because they're all staying at home for social distancing so they don't kill off their fellow citizens in whatever country these things are made in. In other words, even if if uh, Musk and GM and the others get supply chains that they can count on, they can't count on the workers to make the gadget that goes in the ventilators. What I'm proposing is that we change directions, that we basically give Elon Musk and GM and anybody else who's a big, major um, uh, manufacturing uh, house, we give them the designs, the original designs for the old-fashioned iron lung invented by two doctors at Harvard back in 1927. But actually, the idea goes back to the 1600s, would you believe, in England, where the first hand version of this was invented. And then there have been successive inventions and modifications, and there's one really amazing modification, which I'm going to have Ron come on in the third hour and talk to you about, because frankly, when he told me about it, I was either distracted or it's too complex. He says he can do it in five minutes. We're going to find out whether he can do it. But this could be the best answer of all. If we were to turn Musk loose with robotics, with CAD, 
with computer technology, with ship, with all the stuff that we now have, 3D printing, um, all of this technology. If we turned him loose to build a million iron lungs, they're so much simpler. You know, keep it simple, stupid. The KISS principle. They're basically motors. You know, you could add a little computer feedback. Um, you could add, you know, lithium iron batteries so that the nurse wouldn't have to mechanically move the lever back and forth to make the bellows go in and out. The way they work is something called the negative pressure principle. If you, if you, you know, kind of look at the air around you, it's pressing down on you with something like 15 pounds per square inch. And you don't realize it because the pressure outside your body is equalized to the pressure inside your body. So it's irrelevant what the pressure is within, you know, wide limits. That's why, for instance, in um, Apollo, the astronauts went to the moon and back with a cabin pressure of 5 PSI, but it was pure oxygen. It's the amount of oxygen your lungs get. So what these machines do is they basically create, you know, you put the patient in, you slide them in on a kind of a sliding bed. They, they used to put a neck dam around their neck, which keeps the pressure inside and the head outside with a mirror so that, you know, the people could interact with nurses and doctors and all that. The most of their body was inside this sealed tube and the pumps and the regulators, all they did was to increase and decrease the pressure by just a little amount, you know, a few pounds. And what happens is if you make a partial vacuum, the air outside is going to go in through the patient's, you know, mouth, nose, windpipe, reach the lungs, inflate them. And then if the pressure is increased inside this cylinder, that increased pressure will gently compress the body, the lungs, the chest, so the air that's been inhaled is now exhaled. And this is done on a regular cycle, and it can be set up, obviously, with computer control. It can be really, you know, automated. And nurses, you know, can monitor and all that. But it's so much simpler, and they can be done so much faster because the ventilators have, I found out, doing some research, almost 200 of these very specialized parts and even if Musk could recreate, you know, take one apart and 3D print all those little parts that need to be in it, why do something complicated when something much, much, much simpler, much more attuned to an assembly line, to a series of robots making these things, you know, a thousand a day, that, that kind of thing. I mean, very quickly we could get, if we had more than one set of factories, we could get enough old-fashioned iron lungs. Now, first big change I would recommend. Don't make them out of steel, which is why they were called an iron lung. Make them out of carbon fiber composites. The same things that the wings and the aircraft, uh, the, the Boeing 787 is made of. Much more lightweight, very strong, durable. You could probably whack it with you know, a, a wrecking ball and nothing would happen. You could allow nurses then to move these around much more easily on wheels than the original Iron Lung, which was a big, heavy, complicated machine for its time, 1950s, 1940s, 19th, early 60s, which had you know motors and the pumps and all this. This could be streamlined. This could be you know, prepped in a computer in a couple of days with the right kind of engineers he's assembled who are brilliant, brilliant geniuses, most of them. And this is a motivating factor because their families could come down with this. And if they don't have a ventilator or artificial respiration technology available, some of those young people will die. And the number of people who, quote, have to die is so tiny compared to the number of people this could save. So this is what I want you guys to do. And we're going to have a, a run on, as I said, in the third hour to talk about this Thunberg um, device by the way, if that name does sound familiar, we think it may be her great-grandfather or her grandfather. We're going to you know, do a little checking. But it's – let me tell you why this is important for two reasons. One is availability. If under the Defense Production Act, um, you could order companies to basically make these, you could have a million in just a couple of weeks. I mean they're not complicated. And everything could be computerized in terms of assembly and welding and 
you know, gluing or however you want to put the cylinders together and the bellows and all this. Things that has been noted clinically is that um, uh, COVID-19 patients who need assistance from this kind of technology have to stay on it a long time. We're talking weeks. And this has been attributed to the damage done by the virus to the lungs. The advantage of this technology, this negative pressure technology, is that you're not ramming a plastic tube down somebody's throat. Ah! And you're not forcing air into the lungs through the tube, thereby further damaging the lungs with what's called a positive pressure technology. The negative pressure technology simply reduces the pressure in the cylinder around the patient. The natural inclination then is for that air in the lungs to escape to the easiest route possible, which of course is the uh, uh, air, nose and throat and windpipe. And then when it is reversed, the cycle reverses, outside air is forced in by the differential and pressure, and you can regulate that very precisely. So the lungs are essentially undisturbed. And with this technology, which I know is so weird, the 1950s, you know, the 21st century, imagine resurrecting this ancient technology. We have this prejudice that old is bad and new is good. I'm saying tonight, no, no, no. We're looking at this totally from the wrong perspective. We need lots of these so-called iron lungs distributed, not just in this country, but all over the world. I mean, there's a huge demand. You know, in, in India, 1.8 billion people are clamped down, and a lot of them are going to get this thing by the time this this pandemic is over. Imagine if something simple and streamlined that was better for the patient because you're not doing positive pressure, forcing air into the lungs. You expand the lungs with the negative pressure, and the air wants to be in the lung. It just moves gently, depending upon the differential, into the lungs and out, and all that can be regulated. This is something that Musk is so set up to do, provided he gets the right guidance. Anyway, what I want you to do, your mission, everyone listening to my voice all over the world right now tonight, your mission for your own sake, for your own country, is you need to send this information as widely as possible to hospitals, to political people, to mayors, to governors, to presidents, hint, hint, because if this technology was widely adapted and produced at the rate at which Musk and GM and others could do it, because it's really, really simple, maybe 100,000, maybe 150,000 of those 200,000 deaths that the president was so calmly you know, and casually mentioning this afternoon, which of course to him, I guess, looks better than the 2 million deaths that the Imperial College of London uh, wrote about a few days ago in, in, in case nothing was done. We just let the country get exposed and those who die, die, and those who live, live. And that's where you get the two million figure, by the way, for folks that wonder what he was referencing. That was presented to him a few days ago. This latest number is is apparently, you know, this afternoon. 200,000 deaths is unconscionable. If there are real, radically, dramatically different and better alternatives, which are simpler, which can be mainstream, which can be mass produced much more easily than these infernally complicated ventilators. Can you imagine 200 specialized parts? Some of them, of course, you know, in the Far East where they're having their own problems and people can't show up to work to make them. Anyway, end of rant. Um, If all this seems to you kind of eerily familiar like you've seen this somewhere before well it's because you've seen it on the twilight zone and all the concomitant social effects in fact there's one episode in particular i'm going to talk to arlen about that's one of my favorites about aliens who basically instill fear and panic in a small town and i think the title of that episode was something on on maple street uh my guest will give us the exact title The point is, 
that from the perspective of outside, what's going on on this planet now is not only very damaging to the social fabric of the world, but its industrial capacity, its military capacity to confront any, shall we say, outsiders. Um, we're not going to talk politics tonight, but when I have Mads uh, Salvik back on, which will be, I think, in a week or two, uh, I think it's eh, – I forget what it is. We've rescheduled that for the next couple of weeks. That's one of the things we're going to talk about. If this is not a natural pandemic, if this didn't just emerge from bats and uh, you know, uh, uh, anteaters in, in China, did someone do this? Is this, in fact, what subliminally all the war talk, you know, nurses and doctors on the front line, I'm a wartime president, all of this, is this all subliminally trying to tell us that we're really in a war? And again, you know, from having listened to the show a lot, that I do not like to spend a lot of time speculating without data. But when I have data, I love to present it because it's data which will change everything. And we're working now to schedule an old friend of ours, uh, Chandra Rikrama Singh, who you may remember has been collecting viruses and bacteria from outer space with very high altitude balloons and looking at what's on the surface of the space station, which has kind of amazed everybody. And he has come to the conclusion that the solar system is filled with bacteria and viruses from some natural origin. And when we get him on, I'm going to talk about other possible origins other than this is just the galaxy making a lot of very primitive life type stuff. I think it's much more intriguing and may have been another relic of the distant time in the solar system when very, very, very bad things happen. In other words, the great war that we've been talking about in terms of extraterrestrial archaeology. That's a very complicated show all by itself. But again, it all comes back to this idea of this is like a script right out of the Twilight Zone. Arlen Schumer is an award-winning comic book-style illustrator for the advertising and editorial markets and a member of the Society of Illustrators, an author, designer of coffee table art books, including Visions from the Twilight Zone and The Silver Age of Comic Book Art, which won the Independent Book Publishers Award for the Best Popular Culture Book and a recognized expert on American popular culture, especially the legendary television series, The Twilight Zone, and the music of Bruce Springsteen, presenting his visual lectures on these and other subject universities and uni around and other cultural institutions around the country. Um, this is a direct quote from Alan, uh, Arlen. I'm sorry. I'm going to do that tonight a lot. Okay. My father died when I was four months old, and my mom raised my older by 18 months brother and me herself. I grew up in Fairlawn, New Jersey, a great place in the early mid 60s with equal parts bucolic American suburbia and small town Rockwellian pop culture ambiance. I think I'd ended up finding my surrogate father figures in the pop culture I was surrounded with. So without further ado, Arlen Schumer, you are on the other side of midnight. Hey, Richard. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's quite quite an honor. Now, you're going to have to kill that background speaker because I do not want to go through three hours listening to myself. Are you okay? I'm Rich, here. we're into a break. And, yeah, exactly. We are into a break. I'll tell you what. Let's, let's do our break, and then when we come back, I will introduce uh, Arlen properly, and we will – we will proceed with some very interesting conversation. I mean, this is so amazingly timed. It's just so amazingly timed because we are almost literally living in an episode of The Twilight Zone.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And I cannot ever listen to that music without getting chills. Ah. How did you get involved? We got to start back to, you know, Arlen, little boy, growing up in bucolic New, 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 New Jersey, I guess. Yes. How did you? How did you wind up deciding to be an illustrator of the pop culture of our time? Well, it's funny you talk about my early childhood because. Richard, what if I told you the very first image I can recall seeing as a child, I had to be about four and a half years old, sitting in front of a black and white television in New Jersey, and the very first image I can recall is the black and white Twilight Zone eyeball hanging in outer space, which was the January 1963 graphic opening of the show. And that's my very first visual image. So the fact that I ended up becoming an artist and ended up doing artistic projects about the Twilight Zone, like a coffee table art book, and that the image embossed on the hardcover dust jacket, underneath the dust jacket, is an embossed Twilight Zone eyeball, so I paid homage (laughs) to that image. But... You know, the fact that that's my very first image, you talk about the, the Twilight Zone, you know, it, it sort of set the course of my life. Fascinating. So, all right, let's talk about your life. Um, education, interests, girls, girls are always interesting, and how you wound up uh, being a, a premier comic book illustrator. You know, I, I know Chris Knowles very well. He's been on the show countless oh, times. Really? Yeah, yeah, sure. And I we talk... Chris. We talk a lot about symbolism and multi-level messaging and all that. As we get further into the program, I'm going to give you a model for what I think Twilight Zone really was doing. I don't think it's an accident. We got Serling and we got Twilight Zone and we got them so pure in terms of how Hollywood usually treats creative people that, again, the anomaly to me is recursive of the very theme of the title of the show. It's like we were all in an episode of The Twilight Zone when it first premiered in October, right after Halloween of 1959. So how did that image then then bootleg, bootstrap, I'm sorry, not bootleg, bootstrap the rest of your life and your career? 
Well, like a child of the 60s, I grew up with, obviously, with television, with uh, popular culture, comic books, obviously. When I went to summer camp as a young child, they were strewn all over the bunks, and I got into superheroes, and I started to read comics before I even learned how to read in school. I mean, they gave me a vocabulary that I still use to this day, you know, words like invulnerable and origin and hoax. These were all DC Comics words that I picked up on as a kid, but also visually I started drawing uh, superheroes and my brother and I were both fans of these things. So, you know, Sean Connery, James Bond and the movies and all of that American pop culture along with art itself just infused me and I always knew I was going to become an artist. And, you know, whereas a lot of kids struggle with identity crises, um, I never had that growing up because I just always knew from three years old that I was going to be an artist. I'm having crises now as an adult, but as a kid, I didn't have that identity crisis. <laughs> when did you figure out you could draw? Well, I've been drawing since I was three years old. You know, my older brother, we were watching television, and there was a children's show called Diver Dan. And it was about a deep sea diver and they filmed it live action, but he walked like in slow motion as if he were underwater and they had fake fish hanging from <laughs> monofilament wires and people out there listening, if they grew up in the early sixties, they'll know about diver Dan, but because you never saw his face, they kept him hidden behind that deep sea diving mask. So in a way he was like a superhero that he wore a mask and it was a mystery who Diver Dan was. So my brother started drawing him and he was a year and a half older than me. And then I, because I did everything my older brother did, like most of younger course. brothers do, course, yeah. I ended up drawing Diver Dan. And, you know, I still have my early drawings when I was six years old of Diver Dan and I haven't stopped drawing since. Wow. So you went through high school and then you went to college when Rhode Island School Design, the Harvard of Art Schools, as it likes to be known. Wow. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Great education there. I mean, given that pop culture and, and certainly comic books are so reviled by the opinion leaders of this country, certainly back in the 50s and 60s, I mean, there were even governmental commissions and yes. national codes of decency and weird people that tried to take comic books out of the hands of impressionable young kids because they were a bad influence and all that nonsense. How did you navigate to where you suddenly thought, this is what I want to do with my life? Well, you know, you mentioned about all these uh, anti-comic book things. That all stems from one psychiatrist early 50s who wrote this book called Seduction of the Innocent hmm. in which he blamed all of juvenile delinquency on comics and it practically killed the medium um, and I remember my mother may she rest in peace always told the story about how she went to the guidance counselor in our school elementary school because all we read were comics you know I don't remember <laughs> as a kid reading children's books it was just comics so God bless that guidance counselor, whoever he was, when my mother said to him, should I be worried that all they're reading are comics? <laughs> the man, that guidance counselor, whoever he was, answered her by saying, as long as they're reading. And thanks to him, my mother – now, obviously, oh, what if, a if genius. our mother had even – right. If our mother had even touched our comics, you know, <laughs> I, I talk to adults now when I lecture, and – Invariably, after I'm done lecturing, somebody comes up to me, an adult, and always says, when I was a kid, my mother threw out my comics. By the way, it was never the father. For some reason, it was always <laughs> my mother. Now, now, my mother was a widow. My, she raised my brother and I herself, so my father was a face in the photograph, hence me finding my male father figures in the uh, pop culture. Okay. <laughs> but if our mother had even touched our comics, she would have ended up in the garbage outside. But – um. But because of that, I never had – my mother was very easygoing, and as long as we were happy, that's all that mattered. You know, a lot of parents, the society dissuades as many artists as it encourages, all because of the usual uh, idea that, oh, well, you know, you can't make a living as an artist. So parents want their kids not to go into art. 
But luckily, my mother, she figured as long as I was happy, we were good students. And I just always knew I was going to become an artist. And I went through that stage as a teenager where I thought I wanted to be a comic book artist. But um, I ended up going to Rodown School Design because a great comic book artist who I hope is listening in named Walter Simonson had just come out of Rodown School Design when I was in high school. And he had this radical new style that really broke a lot of rules. And I read in the very first issue his work appeared in that he was a recent graduate of Rodown School Design, which I'd never heard of. And I thought if they could turn out a guy like Walt Simonson, that's where I want to go. So I ended up going to RISD. But when I got there, I learned that their graphic design department was actually the more respected, better department. Hmm. And graphic, graphic design is a mixture of words and images. And that's what comics are, words and images. That's what print advertising that I grew up with is word. In fact, our whole society is words and images. The internet is words and images. Mm. So comics are not a fad. Comics, the, the visual verbal language of comics is graphic design. I've done lectures about this. I've written articles about this. Or I'll talk about a comic artist like Jack Kirby, the creator of the Marvel Universe, and I'll discuss the graphic design of Jack Kirby. So I, you know, I think you originally might have called me a comic book artist. I've never been a comic book artist. Mm -hmm. I'm an illustrator working in a comic book style that's very different. I've never worked for the comic book companies in any capacity, and yet I've been an historian of Marvel and DC comics my whole life. Um, and that's what I, I kind of have, have a twin career, both as an illustrator and as an historian of comic book art, but I've never actually been a comic book artist. Oh, how interesting. Who was that famous designer in the 60s? I think his name was Lowy. He designed Coke. He designed Robert all Lowy. Robert Lowy. Robert Lowy. And he worked literally hand in glove with JFK on the really? floor of the Oval Office. He brought in a design for Air Force One. And the yeah. president and he worked together, and Kennedy became a co-creator in the incredible, incredible color scheme of Air Force One. Wow! This is all in Lowy's book. I and, did not know that. Well, you can you can look it up, and it's really interesting that our president was very, uh, very, shall we say. Uh, much of a generalist and he had a huge hand in redesigning Lowy's original sketches. For one thing, Kennedy hated red and Lowy's first proposal for air force one was coming off the air force mats, seven Oh sevens, which were basically brilliant orange and Kennedy always hated them. So he went for blue and he went for indigo and sky blue and lapis lazuli and all of these celestial connections between earth and heaven. And that's why the design of Air Force One is so amazing, even now, you know, decades, decades well, and decades later. I would imagine Kennedy's aversion to red was because red was associated with Russian communism. Mm, I possibly. remember one of my high school teachers telling me that back in the 50s, he had just bought a pink suit and the color pink <laughs> was very popular in the 50s. And he's walking down Fifth Avenue and a woman stopped in the middle of the sidewalk and pointed at him and yelled communist. Because <laughs> he was a pink suit. So I bet you that's why uh, he was anti-red, pun intended. Yeah, Jackie loved to wear pink and her pink pillboxes became a standard. Of course. Interesting. Anyway, so yeah, so graphic design. So you come at it from what product development or illustration of major heavyweight no, no, no. tomes or what? Well, graphic design is verbal visual communication. So whether that's in print or online or in any medium, but it's 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 words and pictures. That's what graphic design is. Okay. So whether it's designing, you know, think of everything that you handle, whether it's brochures. Uh, book cover, everything is graphic design. Everything you look at in the culture. It's so amazing. Uh, you take it so for granted. Design. It's like air. You just, it, you're surrounded by it, so you don't notice it until you stop, exactly. like I did with Air Force One, and really dig into it and find this amazing story. Yes. 
Anyway, so that graphic design was that it was not only comics were graphic design, but our whole world is basically words and pictures. Hmm. So where did you get your first professional job being a graphic designer? I came out of art school and I worked for a RISD alum who was a creative director at the PBS station in New York City, WNET, Channel 13. And I ended up designing television graphics um, for him and for the station for about a year. And then I went to NBC Ah. and ended up doing the graphics for the David Letterman show and Saturday Night Live, the NBC art department. Oh, that must have been so much fun. Well, yes and no. You know, it's funny. They talk about the glamour industry. I mean, people ask, <laughs> Arlen, did you ever you know, meet David Letterman? I said, yeah, I think once I was in the NBC bathroom, and as I was the <laughs> stall, he was like, I think that's about the only time. But, you know, I was in the art department on the second floor. The show was on the 14th floor, and we did the graphics, and they were, you know, shuttled up. And this is pre-computer, obviously, so graphics were done physically on boards. And then, you know, television was unionized, so you couldn't go on the stage and put the graphic. You had to give it to a union guy to put it on stage. Tell me about it. Uh, let me let me, let me me see a funny story at CBS because, of course, I'm an alum of CBS, work with Cronkite and all that. And the first time I wound up on the floor, on the studio floor, you know, Cronkite yells over the intercom, where's Hoagland? Get the moon stuff in here. So I pick up my stuff, right, to go to the anchor desk. And five union guys stopped yes. me, and they said, "Oh no, you can't do that." And I, I'm 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 walking in, and I'm being followed by a line of five guys carrying each one carrying a piece of the research that I was going to present to Cronkite. It, it was like oh, one of those yeah. one of those African safaris where you know you always have the 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 guys what what do they call them porters who carried all the gear. Yeah, it was. I and I, and I went around the studio. With this train of people behind me, I couldn't move anything. This five or six guys had to follow me and carry whatever I was going to use or present. It was it was weird. Well, you know, it's funny. But when when I left NBC a year later, I just saw it as a temporary job. I didn't see it as a career thing. I wanted to go into advertising. I wanted to be an art director. And I remember just as I was leaving, the union guys – you know, it took about a year for them to get me a union card. And, I, and I'll never forget, they walked me to the union office. And it's just like you see out of a Scorsese movie. You know, it's closer to the mob, obviously, than anything. <laughs> but I was going to be a made man. And I had this attitude, you know, I was 24 years old, like television, big deal. You know, I want to do other things. And I'll never forget, they had this attitude because they were all lifelong union men. They had this attitude of like, that they were giving me the keys to the universe, <laughs> and I was this young know-it-all that could care less. Yep, yep. And and of course, now I look back on it years later. I'm like, I should have stayed in that. You should have. You should have. Yep. Okay. Uh, so, one, one, one more quick story. One day, I I had to do something on the set for you know the moon or Earth or whatever, and I went down to the art department. Which, if you were at a major network like NBC, you know how amazing the art department was, right? You know, and so I go to meet a guy, young guy named Tom Barger. Remember his name vividly, and he's showing me very proudly how he is using a, um, you know, a, a spray gun. Um, right. He's making airbrush. airbrush. He's making the the Earth, clouds, continents, and all this. And right. this is the big globe which sits behind Cronkite during all the Apollo coverage slowly rotates to give that feeling that he's sitting in space between earth and moon. And then he shows me a detail and he says, look over there. And I look and I don't see anything. He says, look closer. I still don't see anything until he showed me that he had written his name in the clouds over the North Atlantic. So every shot with that globe Tom Barger's name went to half a billion people all over the world watching our space coverage. Wow. Graphic design. <laughs> well, he never told anybody. He only told me. Oh. oh. <laughs> so. Yeah, who and, do you think he was? Hirschfeld putting the name Nina in everything? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So you're a graphic designer. You're a young, not dry behind the eyes kid like I was at CBS. 
when did you, what was the big thing that kind of settled you on a path? Well, after I did end up going into advertising and lasted about a year there, and, <laughs> um, you know, I was never good with office politics. I was meant to be, obviously, on my own, but when I was out of work living in New York City in a six-floor tenement walk-up, I'm 25 years old, and I always knew that my childhood idol comic book artist named Neil Adams. Oh, had, Neil. Neil's been on the yeah, show. Really? Well, there you go. Do you so, know why? When, Tell me. Because of his expanding Earth ideas. Oy vey. <laughs> a very a good Jewish expression. Subject. Well, you tell me. I mean, you know, are those theories valid? Well, they, they, they come from a mainstream geologist in Australia in the 1950s, and Adams has done brilliant work in proselytizing, making them better well-known you know, my personal opinion is that that model is what's really going on in stars and planets all over the solar system and all over the galaxy. And Neil Adams, a comic book artist, has brought this to general public attention. Well, yes and no. You know, he has a 120-page graphic novel about his expanding Earth theory that he's been working on and off for decades, and he's never put it out. And I think when he did go on this burst of kind of public relations, I'm going to say 15, 20 years ago, he was really out there uh, doing it. Um, you know, he got a lot of kickback from, you know, conventional science. But <laughs> in the history of science and the history of anything, there's always the person that's laughed at by the conventional powers that be. And then years and decades later, they're proven right. So, you know, is Neil one of those kind of cracked geniuses mm -hmm. that will end up getting proved right? Has he been proved right? I don't know. Well, stay tuned because I'm, yeah. I, I'm, you know, to me, the way he explains it, because most of public education is how do you explain it and illustrate it. Right. Well, he's very convincing. Because it's real. It's a real, it's a real model. It's a real scientific model. It's yeah. paradigm shattering, revolutionary, any term you want. But a graphic designer for comics, Neil Adams, is the guy who's out there showcasing it, which again is another testament that we live in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> so how so did anyways, you... So, yeah, so, so when you're out of work and you're 25 years old, that's when you have the courage to go up to your childhood idol's office and show them your sketchbook. And the very next day they called me up and they wanted me to come and work. So I oh. ended up working. If somebody had told me, Richard, when I was 12 years old in 1970, that Arlen, one day you will be working for Neil Adams. You will be penciling <laughs> drawings that he will ink. I would have had an adolescent heart attack right there on the street. So for the first couple of months working for him, you know, it was sweatshop hours, work doing, we were doing mostly advertising art, storyboards, animatics for the advertising industry in New York, but it was a seven day a week, 12 hour day schedule. We never saw daylight, hmm. but it was like, it was like going to graduate school and getting paid for it um, to learn from a master. And, you know, he taught by example, he taught by a criticism. So you, you'd do a drawing, and you'd be pretty proud of it, and you knew there was one little tiny area in the lower left where you kind of screwed <laughs> up, but the rest of the drawing was great. You'd show it to Neil, and like a laser beam, he would go right to that part where you screwed up, and that's how you learn. So I value that education, and, but I always knew when you're done working for your childhood idol, who else can you work for? So I always knew I would be on my own whenever I would leave him. So I worked for him for mm. about two and a half years. And ever since then, I decided because, remember, we were doing mostly advertising art, which paid the bills. And back then in the 80s, that's where a lot of the money was in New York City uh, commercial art. But Neil used to do comics for advertising, but because the commercial advertising work paid more than that, he was mostly doing storyboards and animatics. And I noticed a lot of comics for advertising jobs were coming in and out of the studio, not getting done because we were too busy making the big money doing storyboards and animatics. And I figured one guy can make a pretty good living just on the work he's turning down. 
And that's what gave me the idea to go out on my own, not to do comic book art, but to do comic book art for advertising. And I've been basically doing that ever since. Well, it's that old joke, you know, where do you go from up? Right. <laughs> I had a very similar problem. I, you know, get a call from Cronkite. And after I did all that and Apollo and going to the moon, I mean, what do you do for an encore? So, <laughs> and I figured out what to do. <clears throat> I would try to crack the mystery of an extraterrestrial civilization that used to inhabit this whole solar system. So I've, I've had my work cut out for me for many, many decades after Walter and I parted ways. Mm. So, okay, we've got just a couple of minutes till the top of the hour. Just give us a tease. When did you first decide to do something with your first image, the eyeball of the Twilight Zone? Okay, so before I worked for Neo, remember I told you I was working in the Channel 13 Art Department. Right. And I read in the comic book or pop culture fan magazine at the time, whatever it was. Uh, again, pre-computer, pre-internet. You had to get our news with hard copy. They announced that there was Bantam was going to put out a book called The Making of the Twilight Zone. Now, at the time, this is 1981, the only book about a television show was The Making of Star Trek. If you go into a bookstore now, the few bookstores that are remaining, there's a whole television section. But back in 1981, there was only one book about a television show. Hmm. And then this, this Now, that was book, preceded, you know, by the famous book, uh, The Making of 2001. That was also yeah, but a that, bantam. But that's, a, but that's about a movie. I'm talking about... Oh, there's the a difference? There, there, oh. There, well, well, there were behind-the-scenes... <laughs> books about movies for years right television was a different animal the only book about the behind the scenes of a tv show before 1981 is the making of star trek ah. so when mark zickery the author of the twilight it ended up being called the twilight zone companion when he when it was announced that he was going to write this book on the behind the scenes and an episode guide of the twilight zone I had grown up with the Twilight Zone, again, the, the early memories, and there I was, a young graphic designer, and I just had this thought bubble over my head. The minute I read that, I've got to be the art director of that book. Hmm. Hold it there. We're at the yeah. bottom of the hour, my guest this morning is Arlen Schumer, the author of The Visions of the Twilight Zone, and boy, are there some visions in the Twilight Zone that we're going to be getting into tonight. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And... You'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because... Without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>